Hi, and welcome to this episode of I've Got This Kid. I'm your host, Sharina Williams, a speech and language pathologist, ultimately mom of two, wife of one, here to share everything speech, language, play, development, homeschooling, and all kinds of other stuff that falls in between. World changers right now, it's a mess around these parts. I have been planning for the next school year. I have been working on my method section. It's been crazy, but that's okay, because this is one of my favorite places to be. I have to think about any of that stuff right now. Oh, I told you guys, we were going to have a guest. I have with us today, Dr. Chris Brown, and he's from University of Austin. And I am honored to have him on the show today, here talking with me. And I'm going to let him take it away. Tell the people who you are. Hi, I'm, so I'm Christopher Brown. I'm a professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm a father of three. A uh, happily married man, uh, former preschool, first grade, kindergarten teacher. Um, and right now it's hot just trying to stay cool in Texas. <laughs> I can attest to the same. We were talking about when we started how hot it is right now. And we're just trying to keep it afloat. And Dr. Brown is here. He's going to be kicking it off with us talking about back to school readiness, talking about the truth about kindergarten readiness. What does that even look like? What does that feel like? What should we be concerning ourselves with? And I have a suspicion that by the end of this episode, what you thought you needed ain't necessarily what it's going to be. And so we're going to break that down for you today. And I just, I can't wait because we've talked about it a little bit. And so I think by the end, we are going to challenge you guys to rethink what readiness really is and what readiness looks like. So I'm going to start off with the first question. How should parents prepare for the upcoming school year? Well, I think there's there's many things families and parents can do for their children or their sugars, as you say. The first easy thing to do is to start talking with your child about what's going to be happening the upcoming year and letting them know that you're excited for them, that you want them to have a great year and, and that you're there for them to support them as they go through it. But also you want to make sure that you're giving them the space to ask you questions and to share their thoughts and ideas about it particularly if this is your child's first time going into a public school setting or a preschool setting, giving them that space to talk with you about it, which isn't easy, but being there and listening to what they have to say is really, really important. And if they share with you some fears or concerns, you know, talk through what you might do or how you felt when you were their age going through these same experiences. I think beyond that, things you can do as a parent, you know, learning's all around you, it's happening all the time. So think about how you can engage your child in some learning activities. The easiest, most simple thing to do is to be sure that you're reading to your child every day. That's just such an important and positive activity that you can be doing. Other little things you can be doing as a parent are cooking with your child. It's a really easy way to work on math skills with your kid, measuring things out, counting, all those things come into play. Being in there, singing silly songs with your child. Rhyming is such a great activity with your kid. And they don't have to be good songs or even real songs. Making things up is always fun. And kids love to do that with you. I think that's just such an important thing to do. I think also things that you can do to help support your child is making sure they're having chances to socialize where it's appropriate and safe. I know COVID has changed everything, but having that social interaction is so important for a child so that they can learn how to make friends, learn how to disagree and get along, make up. All those things are really important. Uh, and it also gives them the chance to, to think about what it's going to be like to go into a new space with a lot of new people if they're able to do that. I know the summer things have been crazy with the Delta variant, so I'm not sure what the fall is going to look like in every single context. So other things to think about as well, is your child having chances, if possible, to interact with other adults? Because going into school is a place where adults will be telling them to do things. And if they don't have those experiences of being told what to do or being asked to do things by someone who's not their family member or parent, it can be a little bit shocking. So really thinking about that as you're going forward. And then also just being there for them across all these things. I think the thing that it's really important to remember when you're learning how to do stuff, no matter your age, you're gonna make a lot of missteps and have a lot of failures within that. And as a parent, you're the perfect person to be there to support them and nurture them through that process so that they learn that it's okay. And I think that part of schooling, particularly for young children, it's hard because we ask them to do so many different things. And if they don't have that self-perseverance, as well as you know the, the ability to get past things, um, it can be a big struggle them, for them across the school year. So as parents, letting them know it's okay. No one's perfect. We all make mistakes. The most important thing is to learn from that mistake. If you've hurt somebody, say you're sorry and go forward with that process. 
I think you've hit on so many different <laughs> that we're going to unpack all of it. Like, okay. going to unpack it all. And the first thing that you mentioned that really stuck out to me was the idea of sitting down and talking to them about what's going to happen. This is what you're going to look forward to. This is how it's going to be, but not just the talking piece, but the listening piece. And I think that it's such a unique space to create with your sugar because you want to keep those lines open for communication so they can continue to unpack and reflect on, you know, this might be a little bit scary for me. And what if this happens? And what if that happens? And by us opening those lines of communication, it provides us the space to come in and give some kind of assurances and reassurances about what is going to be and to let them know like it is okay for it to be scary it's okay for it to be uncomfortable like things some things in life new things in particularly are usually pretty uncomfortable but you're going to be fine and so it's it's giving them those tools but also from that emotional social standpoint it's also connecting your relationship with them so they'll know that they have an advocate in mom and dad and mom and dad may not be there, but they're going to be there as soon as it's over. They're going to be there to talk about these things and they're interested in what's taking place, this newness. I love also how you talked about instead of sitting down and getting a piece of paper and doing pre-academic skills, like integrating that into everyday life. I am a firm believer in making stuff real, making it work. And I'm the queen of silly songs. My kids will tell you, like, I am the queen of stupid songs. Excuse my French, but I am. I will make up a song about anything and everything. And now I find that they do it all the time, especially the little one, is making up random songs. But I also see them now as they're getting older using that and learning. The songs give them a space if they get stuck, something they can come back to naturally and it helps them get unstuck, particularly with the academic songs about, you know, counting or numbers or letters. But even with stuff, if you're singing how to brush your teeth in the morning, you know, <laughs> if you sing that two times, two minutes, then you're like good to go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think like bringing those things to life in the things that you enjoy cook, uh, like enjoy doing, whether it's cooking, whether it's through art. Can you get five crayons? Can you get five markers? Can you um, can you bring us two pieces of paper? Oh wait, your your fuzzy doll is going to play too. Well, bring little fuzzy along and get three pieces of paper and let's count that out and make sure that maybe I get two crayons and you get three crayons and oh wait, now we need something for Mr. Fuzzy. So how many crayons do you think Mr. Fuzzy should get? How many do we have all together? And that's fun for them. It's also tangible for them. And it, it brings things in real life. It brings things to life for them in a way to where it's not just like this rote knowledge, but they can apply this information to everyday life. The third thing that you brought up that it stuck out to me so much because I'm a clinician at heart. And, you know, early intervention is my jam. I love my little people. Like, I love my little people because I feel like the foundation is everything. And if you get a great foundation in there, then building after that, not going to be always easy, but should be a little bit smoother. Things should be a little bit smoother with that. And so when you talk about the following directions from adults. Yes. I hear so many mixed messages about um, allowing children to express themselves or giving them the choice if an adult gives a directive, then they have a choice or the parent doesn't necessarily make the child follow through or okay. the parent doesn't necessarily know how to like have them follow through without it being a blow up thing. And a lot of times that starts in toddler world around toddler time, two years old is when that really happens. And it's developmentally appropriate because at that time, little sugar is asserting themselves and realizing that mom is mom 
and I'm me and we're two separate people and I have my own thoughts and ideas. And so all of a sudden, even the yeses become no. And so it becomes intimidating for the parent because they feel like, oh my gosh, you've been doing everything I said up until now and being like the biggest people pleaser. And now all of a sudden you don't want to do anything I'm asking you to do. And some parents back away from that, not knowing that this is completely normal. And this is actually the time that we need to like assert ourselves and not in a way to where it is like domineering and controlling and we're not hearing sugar's thoughts and ideas, but in a way to where it's like, I hear you. You may not want to pick up your shoes and put them away right now, but I need you to do that. And then you can do this. I need you to put these toys away right now because if you don't put them away, then we're going to have a big mess on our hands. And I'm not the housekeeper. I'm not cleaning them up. And if you're not cleaning them up, then something, you know, something has to transpire in order for both of us to be happy. So also that negotiation is taking place during that time. Well, how about I start helping you and you finish the rest? Um, Or you start and I'll put three away because I took none out, but I'm willing to put three back. And so I'd love to hear from you, like, what do you feel like are the risks involved with not making those demands when it's time to go to class, first day of school, here comes sugar, big sugar at this point, bigger sugar. (laughs) And they're in class. And and how does that play out? Because you have this hands-on experience. School is different than home. And I think before we go into this, I I think parents do need to recognize that their sugars are going to be different in different contexts. So what you hear is happening at school and what you hear happening at home can be two very totally different things. And and your sugar may be more willing to engage in tasks that the teacher is asking them because it's a new environment. Still, uh, within that context, I think helping, helping your sugar know that at home when I'm asking you to do these things, I'm helping prepare you for when you go into school is really important because they are gonna be one of 20 kids at least in the classroom with just one adult. And everybody has to get along and be working together so that the classroom can function. And so learning that they're gonna be asked to do things that they may not want to do so that they can move forward in a learning activity in the classroom is something you can talk about with your child at home when they're younger. They may not get everything you're trying to say, but you're trying to give them a real life concrete example of why we're doing these things. And I really liked your example even if your child made the message, but you're willing to help out, pick up three things for them. It's teaching kids how to engage with others in a community of learners. So whether yeah. when they're in their classroom, maybe they'll do the same thing when their buddy's having trouble picking up the blocks to clean up the block center. Hey, I can help you out. I'll pick up a couple of these blocks so we can get this done faster and move on. So all the things you're talking about are giving the child opportunities to see, as well as you modeling for them, practices that they need to be successful in the classroom environment, because it's a totally different context when your child walks into a space where they're one of many versus just you and maybe a sibling. Um, So just giving them those chances to practice it with you, hear how they should be doing things and giving them that explanation. You don't have to over talk it, but just giving them a clear, simple idea why you're asking them to do this is so important so that, that when they walk into a kindergarten classroom, the sugar is ready to go and they understand this is how we get along. This is how we move forward. And that's why I also said when we were talking earlier, you know, giving them chances to play with other kids to see what that's like. If they're playing with a a friend or playing with a new child who isn't nice or doesn't help out, they're going to tell you about it. And that's a good time to have that conversation of why you've been showing them all these things to help them become independent and be able to do these things on their own, as well as do them without thinking about it. When I make a mess, I clean up and move forward. It's just easier to do things. And when they see their friends aren't doing that, that's when those really good conversations can happen between you and them when they share that experience with you. Yeah, I think that that is so key in in seeing that, like being able to reflect on those ideas on, okay, little Jimmy, he didn't want to clean up. And I noticed that when he's in class not cleaning up, teacher gets mad. Or, you know, he does this, or maybe little Jimmy's falling out on the floor or, you know, and these are real things that happen, right? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And so being able to have that space of like, yeah, this happens, but how can we support even little Jimmy in those spaces? Because Mm -hmm. I'm also an advocate of, okay, if there is that one child that's in class and you know that they're struggling and having a hard time. Do not judge, show them the grace that you would want if you were in that same position because everybody's entitled to a bad day. And some of us have more than others. And some of us, what's a struggle for you 
may not be a struggle for that next person. And what's a struggle for them may not be a struggle for you, but give them the grace that they need to get through that and love them and be that one friendly face that they can rely on, like no matter how bad they mess up, you're there. My daughter had an experience like that in kindergarten, kid you not. And um, it got so bad to the point to where the grandmother would come to school every single day because the teacher needed that much support and there just wasn't enough resources allocated to support what was needed. And my daughter and I would talk about it every single day. And I would remind her every single day, always be the friendly face because he needs a friendly face. Everybody else is looking at him crazy. He needs that friendly face to know that like, yeah, I might be the cut up, but at the same time, there's somebody there who's not looking down on me and who is still rooting for me. And I think that that's even more important. And and definitely that's a little bit off of of topic, but I think that again, it goes back to having those early conversations and, and having those lines of communication open and starting from a very early age of having like these lines of communication open of this happened. How do I even process this? Because I've never seen anything like this before. I've never experienced anything like this before. And, and we're that tool that can help them get through that because teachers not going to always have that ability. No. And, and I think your a good point within that is too, to, when you're talking to a child about this is not only give them grace, but give them a new chance, a new start every day, because a child could, as you said, could have one or three bad days come that fourth bad day it may be a really good day but everybody's expecting him or her to be bad and that just sets them up for failure so it's just always you know all the good teachers that i've had an opportunity to research always tell me the same thing i start each day fresh i forget what happened yesterday and i just go in and start over again and we try to have the best day we can and if something comes up we'll deal with it at that moment but i'm not going to let it i'm not going to let what happened yesterday dictate how i'm acting today that's so true because then there goes the stigma that comes along with that and then all of a sudden this, the, the child has a stigma and I've been in the classroom as well. And, and I know what that looks like of where the teacher feels that way. And so guess what happens all of a sudden? The students feel that way. Right. And so now this little sugar doesn't have a space to where they feel like they're understood, that they're connected with their community and that they're going to get the necessary tools and love and support that they need within that community um, to get to where they need to go. And that doesn't mean that rules shouldn't be applied. It's oh, just no. yeah. that they need that extra push that they might not have gotten. Right. <laughs> no, and, and, and I think that also helps the child recognize that they hope if they have a bad day, someone's going to give them the same chance. And yes. I think that's just really important. Yes, because then I think it also creates that false perception of I have to be perfect all the time because I see how teacher reacts to little Jimmy. I see how my classmates react to little Jimmy. And I mean, it just, it's a snowball. It's totally mm-hmm. a snowball. And so by avoiding having these conversations, it, it definitely leaves out that space to where us as the world changers, because we're the ones that's taking the initiative can come in and guide this conversation and help things along. Um, but also on the other hand for little Jimmy who needs that, I don't know why I'm stuck on that name. Anyway, um, it gives him the help that, that he needs to, to move along. And also for the educator to speak to the parent and have these conversations with the parent and express to them like, yeah, we notice he's having these challenges, but this is how we're loving and supporting him as a community. So that way, by the time it's time for parent-teacher conference, the parent isn't coming in ready to explode at the teacher for being mean to her child. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. And so it definitely has like that snowball effect that I don't even think a lot of times we take the time to reflect and realize is is happening, like how we react, our lead is gonna dictate how everybody else follows. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's um we need to give Jimmy a break now. <laughs> no, I know. Jimmy, you go and be free. You go ahead and roll around on that floor. And if there's anybody listening with the name of uh, yeah, this is no reflection on you. <laughs> we started having a beautiful talk 
about fathers, fathers' roles. A lot of times for me, my experience is that a child gets a diagnosis. Um, once they get that diagnosis, mom is in charge of everything. Mom takes the lead on the learning. Mom takes the lead on the appointments. Mom takes the lead on, on everything that's associated with the growth and the nurturing and the assurance that progress is being made. And I'm always excited when I see both parents involved. And funny enough, during COVID is when I started really seeing both parents becoming a lot more involved. I think because they were able to see, dads were able to see like what mom is doing day in and day out. They didn't necessarily have that lens. Even if both parents were working, somehow dads just automatically assume in our culture, it's assumed that mom's got it. Mom is superwoman. She's got it. She's handling this like a pro, but that's not always necessarily true. So how do we integrate fathers into the learning process, into the rearing process to get them to like debunk that myth that that's mom's thing? Well, I think there's, there's two approaches to this. I mean, one would be a policy approach. How do we think about family leave in general, which this country does not do a good job in general. So a lot of other nations do give both parents time off from work or reduce time at work, which that alone would help bring both parents into the equation. But that's a whole different podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I think, but I think one thing we have to recognize, and from a researcher perspective, children raised in families where they have all their caregivers are actively engaged tend to have much better outcomes across their lifespan. So dads knowing that they really do matter is really important within that process. I think another thing is we need to ask dads to take a step back and think about, you know, who do they want to be as a father and how can they become that person within the relationship they're sharing with their wife? I know society, at least in the U.S. culture, very much emphasizes mothers, but I think we have to, we have to start breaking that that myth up and thinking about if I was going to be the perfect dad or the dad I want to be or the dad I wish I had, what's that going to look like with my relationship with my child and my partner? So having those conversations with your partner is really important within this as well. And I think one of the things that dads also sometimes feel like they're told, at least in a public eye, that, they're, that they aren't nurturing or that they, aren't, they may not know how to be a good parent. I think that's such malarkey. I think we have to recognize as dads, you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Every parent makes mistakes. So you have to be much more forgiving of yourself and try to get beyond this image that you have to be the perfect person, rather just be the best dad that you can be at the moment. I totally agree on all fronts. Matter of fact, so funny, like on my father's side of the family, I have two brothers who are single dads. Okay. Our dad was not like an outstanding dad. Like he just was not, that was not his role. That doesn't mean there wasn't great things about him. It just means like, oh, no. role, he didn't, he didn't get the, the award. Like he wasn't nominated, but we loved him. And I see my brothers so involved. And when you talk about being the dad that they would have wanted, I see mm-hmm. them do. I totally yeah. see them doing that. And so I find it, Funny, and this is what kind of our conversation and knowing that in my mind that like I have two brothers who are definitely like primary caregivers and they do it like they are on school. They are on activities. They are on every aspect of their children's lives like they are on it. And I think that what they give like and then that doesn't mean that i want like families across america to say like just dads should be doing it no not at all but that balance of watching what my brothers bring to the equation and even what my Mm. husband brings to the equation for my kids like he just brings something that i don't necessarily bring because i don't think that way i don't respond that way i am different and yes i feel like i have something to to contribute to the community but it doesn't necessarily mean that I want it all. And it surely doesn't mean that I want them to be left out of that equation and feel like they're devalued just because we can multitask a little bit more. That doesn't mean that, you know, dads can't be a part of that. Um, And so when you bring up like the policy that's around that, absolutely like in this country, there needs to be some policy changes. We were lucky enough for my husband to be able to take off 
time when our kids were born, which is unheard of, right? Mm -hmm. It's unheard of. It wasn't a a lot of time, but it was enough for him to like have those experiences and to be with them early on to where the foundation was set. And for us, the way that we kept it going is that he's in charge of story time every night. I don't touch a book at night. I don't. That's a great, yeah, that's a great idea. And and that's the way that we keep him involved, especially pre-COVID where he's at work all day and then traveling back home. That was the one guaranteed time that they had. And I'm not present. I'm nowhere around. And I do that on purpose because we already know the kids are going to default mommy, mommy, mommy. And I'm like, no, no, no. Mommy is is gone. She is. (laughs) 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 Disappeared. And now that they're older and they still do it. And my daughter is old. She's 12. And she's still like, I want my story. Like, I I want my story. I'm like, how? And I'm starting to think, how long is this supposed to go on? But they're serious. <laughs> I realize that it's more of a bonding thing than it is about the actual story. Like, it, it started off definitely like we need both parents reading every single day and to know that, like, this is a family that values literacy. But then it became like, this is what we do every single day. And for him now, it's like the threat is, if you don't do what I asked you to do, I'm going to take away your story. And you see them willing to like get their lives together because it means that much. And so I think that dads underestimate the role that they have and also like how in very small intentional ways they can contribute and make meaningful impact. Yeah, for sure. And, and the more they're there, the more the, there's more opportunity for the child to open up for them. I think one thing my wife and I try to talk about, we've talked about a lot lately, is making sure that we're there. Our kids are older, but just giving them the space, even if they don't want to talk to us in that moment, yeah. knowing that they're always there, there's going to be a time where they're ready to talk. And so just, just it's always, if you have a bad interaction or an interaction where the child's not engaging, again, Push it behind, move forward, try it again, and just keep doing it so that the child sees there's consistency there and that they want that you want to be a part of their lives and, and in ways they may not be ready for or may not want at that moment. But there's going to come a time when they want they're going to want that. And because you've been there and you've been consistent about it, they'll engage with it. Absolutely. And, and they'll have that space to be like, I don't know what time we were there. It might yeah. not always been the way that I need it, but you were there. Right, right. That means so much. It, it means so much. So I want to take a little bit of a shift and kind of go back. It's a conversation. Totally fine. <laughs> Grab your tea. Grab your coffee. But um, we were talking about mastering areas. I, was, I, I say this all the time. I'm clinically trained. And so I just have a different mind as far as everything I approach is a goal. I do. I approach everything as a goal. I see everything as a goal, not as a drill sergeant, but as like, what is my ultimate outcome? Like if I'm doing something, like what am I trying to get to? When it's time, thinking about our little ones to Mm -hmm. make those that transition into school and a world changer may be like, I don't think my child has mastered a whole lot of anything. Or I'm just now hearing this show and I'm just now learning about like what should legitimately be happening. Because there's so many mixed messages out there about what our focus should be. They know their ABCs, they know how to count, they know their colors. Um, But what if these bigger picture items that are gonna sustain them for the long run, like getting along with community, um, being able to follow directions. What if those areas haven't been mastered? And what if, you know, the the world changer is a child who uh, who has, a, the world changer has a child who has special needs to where it's just taking a little bit longer to master those areas. How can they still support their sugar without running out of steam or giving up? Well, there's a couple of things that they can be doing, but first, I think it's important to recognize uh, development and learning in young children is very uneven. 
you're going to see spurts, you're going to see setbacks, you're going to see all sorts of things happening with a child. And and for me, as a teacher educator and a teacher, I, I the word master makes me very uncomfortable because we're always learning. We're never finished. And so it's just part of that process of going forward. But so if your child for one day, for example, can count to 10, no problem. The next day they start to count to 10 and forget three numbers. It's no big deal. It's just part of the process. It takes time for these things to become internalized and become a, a, nat a natural part of the way they think and the way they work. So, so don't freak out when that happens. Um, and in, when it does happen, don't be so quick to correct or to jump on them. Maybe ask your child to do it again and see if they can see where a misstep might've happened within that process. And, and I think one thing, jumping ahead, I wanna say a couple of things, but jumping ahead, don't try to you know drill it into your child because when you start drilling things into children, you're killing their desire to learn. It and makes I think it that's so really... much fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, think, I think one thing we forget in the research, like David Wilmingham and others have always talked about, learning is really hard. And as human beings, we try to avoid it. What we do is we typically take what we already know and apply it to that new situation. <laughs> but when we're working with our sugars, they don't have those experiences, so they don't have anything to fall back on. And so they really can be struggling and swimming in chaos and not know how to move forward. So we as adults need to be there to be supportive. And we also have to recognize because learning is hard, it takes a lot of mental energy. So we need to give them breaks. We need to give them the chance to take a step back themselves and go play, have fun, do something silly within that. So you just have to really think about where things are going on. Um, but if you are concerned and you feel like there's something missing, don't be afraid to reach out to your allies, be it your child's teacher, your parents, your friends, whoever it may be. A lot of people have insight what child development looks like, and they can give you some, so if you have a specific question, they can really help you think differently about what's going on there. Um, but I also, one last thing I'll say, and I'll let you jump in. I'm sorry if I'm overtaking this. You know, when we're, when we're learning stuff, if a child hasn't, you know, shown full proficiency in something, that's okay. You can still move on. We, yes. we, we we can do multiple things at one time. So if your child is stuck, like I said, with counting and they keep forgetting the number seven when they count to 10, that doesn't mean you should inter not introduce them to counting to 20 or that you shouldn't be doing other academic skills. The more exposure, the more practice, the more experience, that's when those things become internalized by the child and they'll show you the proficiency that you're looking for within that process. I love that idea and I love that thought process because it goes back, it always goes back to me with grace, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. We don't always get everything every single time. We don't always master everything <laughs> on the first go round. And, you know, when, when I talk about goals and I talk about outcomes, I'm looking at what is it I'm trying to get at and what's the most, what's the most effective way to get there? And even if sugar has tried again and again, I agree a hundred percent, like, don't stop challenging them. As a matter of fact, keep challenging them, keep it going, and even introducing, reintroducing the same concept in different ways. Because sometimes it might even be the way that that concept is being introduced. And it might need to be in real time. It might need to be connected to something they're interested in. Um, I'm a firm believer in like activities that little ones love and mm -hmm. building in pre-academic skills within that embed that in there into what they already like without it being like this drill thing and making them feel like a failure if they don't master these certain skills or these certain techniques and it takes them a while to get it and even being comfortable with you're just not going to master everything and everybody has an area that they're going to have to work on a little bit harder. And even the things that they are great at, at some point they're gonna plateau and things are going to get hard. And so giving them those assurances and giving them the tools that they need within those processes without, again, making them feel like they can't, like when we pull away, we're, we're almost sending that silent message that we don't believe that you can accomplish this, even if we don't mean that. Even if we right. don't, even if we don't say it, even if we believe in our, our little one's abilities 100%, but if we pull back, then we almost are sending that silent message that they cannot master this thing. And I'm a firm believer that with time and persistence, you can master just about anything if you're determined enough. If you're mm -hmm. determined enough. 
So I love that idea of, you know, not making them feel like something's wrong with them if they skip over a number, if they forget that number, or even making them do it 10 times again to make sure that it sticks. Like, again, that's not fun. That's not interesting. And it takes the fun away from learning. And what I don't think a lot of world changers know is that when you start embarking on that kind of drill, it kind of starts having a negative impact in other areas of your relationship with your child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also within that, we keep talking about having conversations with your child when your child gets stuck or when they're not demonstrating level of proficiency that you want them to, if you might want to ask them some questions about what they're thinking or, you know, what are you, you know, or ask them, are they understanding what you want them to do? Cause sometimes kids misinterpret what we ask them to do, or they have a different idea what you mean by asking a specific question. So giving them that space to be able to ask you a question and you give them a positive response, I think is really important. And I think another thing you brought up, I think is really important to emphasize is as kids are doing these things, we need to emphasize, we want to tell them, we want to focus on the process more, complimenting them for their effort, complimenting for accomplishing tasks, right. rather than just simply saying, you're so smart, you know, things like that. We just, we, I, I appreciate how, you know, when you got stuck, you took a step back, you thought about it, and then you went forward again within this process. It, giving them, focusing on that effort is so important to help them develop the confidence as learners. It really does. It really does matter. Like even in clinic, if I had a little one who had difficulties with tantruming, well, the whole world is going to interpret that as like, well, you have a tantruming problem and you're just being bad and you're being mean or you're being this. And so even reframing like those ideas around what does a tantrum look like, right? As soon as you shut down, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you your space. And then when you're ready to get up like a big boy or big girl, then I'll be right here waiting for you. Judgment free. Going back to that judgment free. I'm not yeah. going to judge you by what happened five minutes ago. We can't change that. But if you come to me like big boy, big girl, and you're calm, thank you for that. And even congratulating them on, you know what, good job calming down. You know what? I noticed that for the last month, those tantrums, and these are literal conversations that I've had, I've noticed that those were 30 minutes, but today was only 10. <laughs> I mean, but it's better. And then they start thinking to themselves and you see like the toddler, like taking ownership and giving those assurances to them, gives them that confidence for the next time around of a, if things fall apart, they're still going to be there. They're still going to love me. If I fail, they're still going to be there. They're still going to love me. And they're not going to just recognize everything that went wrong, but at least acknowledge, at least at the very least, acknowledge where I tried. So it's really important. It's so important. And throughout these processes, what are your thoughts about engagement, like keeping little ones in cage, keeping them going, especially when it does get difficult? Well, I think I, I mentioned the first part, you know, recognizing as adults, learning new things is hard. It is, is a big step for us. It helps us as adults take a step back. Oh, yeah. You know, learning to read is not an easy thing. It yeah. takes time. It takes practice. And sometimes we forget that because we do it so naturally in our lives. I think another thing to recognize, like the research of Dietschy and Ryan, they talk about basically you want to have three things. Three things need to happen to have a successful learning experience. Um, one, your child or your sugar needs to be interested in the task at hand. Two, they have to have a belief that they can actually accomplish what you're asking them to do. And then three, they have to be in a context where they feel supported. So what happens in a lot of times is we try to force kids to do things that they have no interest in. And when that happens, they're going to shut down or not, or they're not going to really try. They may try to appease you, make you happy, but they're not really engaged in what's happening there. So they're not going to internalize and learn what we need them to learn. So if you're asking kids to do things Think about how you can tap into that child's own interest and experience so that you can build from that rather than forcing them to do something that you want them to do. So, and, and another the last thing, you know, just also thinking about how you're raising your child. You want to focus on that effort a lot. That keeps them engaged because they're noticing that you're noticing how hard they're working. Um, and if you just simply keep saying, good job, good job, like they can do anything. And you're just going to say, good job. Right, right. <laughs> so, and then they get to the point, like, why am I trying? So yeah. it's, just, it's something to think about when you're, when you're working with kids, you know, do they have a choice in this? Do they feel like they're being supported? Um, and do they feel like they can accomplish it? Because if they're already starting from the beginning saying, I can't do this, it, you're going to have to stop, come back to it at a different time. Right. And, and think about how you can approach it in a way where they feel like there is an opportunity or at least a chance for them to succeed in what you're asking them to do. Right. And I think that the early 
building blocks of that is so important. Like as soon as they start moving around and showing interest in things, observing, what are they interested in? For sure. What do they gravitate to? Are they a kid who likes to run? Are they like one of those movement kiddos that just needs the constant stimulation through movement? Or is it a kiddo who likes to take their time and intentionally like work through a, a project or an activity, or they want to intentionally build this whole tower and create this whole world and this whole city around it and all these thoughts and ideas around that? Or are they more of the artistic type to where they want to sit down and create and take things and upcycle or take things and recreate it into something else? Even knowing those things early on will help you in that process. But if you haven't done that at this point, no worries because you can start now. What are they interested in? If you're not sure, start exposing them to different things and watch what they gravitate towards. We think a lot like mainstream, we see so much emphasis on like the technology or the video games and we feel like that's the only thing that little ones are interested in, but that's not necessarily true at all. Like you'd be surprised what a child will do with a cardboard box and a paper towel roll. Okay. <laughs> yep. Some hot glue. You would be surprised what flour and salt and cream of tartar can create. Um, just having these experiences and these moments with them and exposing them rather than assuming that they don't like it because they gravitate towards this one thing. That's not always true. At the same time, we don't want to push things on them in a way to where it's uncomfortable for them. And so it really is a trial and error at this point. Yep. At this age, it's trial and error. Try it out, see what they like. If they don't like it, then always give them the words, then you don't have to do it again. If you yes. genuinely don't like it and we tried it and you don't like it, I hear you, we're not doing it again. And that's when you can create like that trust of, okay, mom might have me try this new thing. I mm -hmm. may not like it. Dad may have me try this new thing. I may not like it, but I also know that if I don't like it, they're not going to keep forcing it on me and forcing what they want on me, which lets me know that I'm being heard and respected. So I'm going to continue to meet them where they are. And I think also within those experiences, making sure that you're physically as well as you know emotionally engaged with your child, um, yeah. you know, patting them on the back, soothing them possibly when they need it as well as you know just being present when they ask you questions you're not on your phone or you're not being distracted by the television whatever might be going on yeah. is just as important within that process yes and that's that's key like you can't be doing this telling the baby i like how you put the blocks together yeah they're you smart. gotta look them in the eye <laughs> look at them and give them that time and if you know you're short on time my suggestion has always been carve out five to seven minutes every day yeah. If you can carve out five to seven minutes every day of uninterrupted time with them, that's better than 30 minutes of you saying great job and pretending yes. to be present, like giving them that respect and that intentionality. So again, they're gonna model what they see you do as they get older and all of a sudden we become more interested as they get older. Isn't that funny? When, the, when they're the least interested around those high school years is, is when we get really interested. But if we take the time now, to set up that foundation of, you know what, I'm going to have our time and we know that this is our time together. This few minutes is our time together and we're all gonna be distraction free. Then you know that I'm paying attention and you know that, that I'm hearing you and I'm watching you and I am impressed by the way that you're doing X. And I'm very excited that you're embarking on this or even trying something that you didn't feel good about. Or I see you counting those numbers and I know it was hard for you and I know you you kept forgetting and now you're super excited to show me that you can do it like kudos well done um when we show that type of intentionality not only are we modeling what we want them to become but we're also again like helping our relationship with them helping us gel together and become a stronger partnership for sure so Final question for the day, and I can't believe our time is almost up. Can you believe it? <laughs> no, it's gone really fast, for sure. Man, how do we build parent confidence to increase buying? That that reluctant parent that's like, I hear you guys, but Sharina, you're a clinician. Dr. Brown, you you're a doctor. 
I, I'm not a doctor. I am mom. I am this. Well, I think whatever that is to your child is really important. And I think that's really important to recognize. Sometimes we forget, you know, how important we are to the people we love the most. And I think that sometimes with kids, kids want you there. They may not always show it, but they once they start to, as you, we've been talking about this whole hour, once that, that they see you're always going to be there for them consistently, they will start to engage with you. I think also as parents, we don't give ourselves enough space and grace to take a step back and think about all the things that we do on a daily basis for our kids. We're told that we have to do these things. So we just do it sometimes without thinking. So taking a step back and just thinking about, wow, think of all the things I've done this morning between 7 and 10 a.m. Not everybody can do that. I think that's just really important for that part to help recognize what's going on, to praise yourself and also give yourself some space and care if you need it to take a step back to think about, well, this morning didn't go so great. That's okay. We have the afternoon. So what am I going to do differently to help my child be successful in the afternoon? I think, and I mentioned this before, you know, we're always learning. We all have growth areas. There are things that we're always working on. And when we can start to recognize every single person we know as a growth area, it becomes easier to stop thinking about perfection and start thinking about the attention we're giving our child and how we're creating that intimate relationship. And I think, you know, also don't be afraid to fail. It's okay to try new things and not do well at it. Right. That is a learning opportunity for you and your child, because when you fail, your child is going to watch you and see how you respond to that. Mm -hmm. And if you can show your child that you have the patience and the grace in your own self as a learner, take a step back. If you hurt your child, apologize. Or if you upset your child, apologize, and then try something different so that it works out. That's such a huge learning moment for everybody. And that gives your child more confidence in reaching out to you and, and asking you to do things that they know that you may not be comfortable with because kids start to recognize how we respond to the questions we ask them. And if we come back always at a negative or not interested way, they're going to stop asking. So we just have to try and we have to keep responding. And even if we fail, if we, even if we're uncomfortable, letting the child know it's not my favorite thing, but I'm going to do it because I love you. Right. That's a really powerful thing. Right. Um, like, so it's just part of that process. I think Parents do amazing things on a daily basis, and they sometimes forget about that. And I think because there's so much they're dealing with, parenting is a really, really, really hard job. And I don't think we say that enough. And so just to recognize if you haven't been as engaged as you hoped at this point in your life, that doesn't mean it always has to be that way. What's most important is that you, you think about how can I stop doing this and start a new thing? Because we're always learning within this process. And I think particularly when kids are going into elementary school, knowing that their parents are there by their side, that they're their biggest fan and biggest ally is really going to help them have a more successful schooling experience. And so that you're there when they have trouble, you're there when they have success. And, and within that, celebrating those little moments is so important. So the first day of school, celebrate that. You know, the last day of school, celebrate that. The first time a child, you know, reads a book to you, make sure that's a big deal. All those things really matter. And that's when the kids keep coming back to you because they know, they're going to get the things they need, that nourishing love, that support, that care. Um, you know, those things really matter. And that helps us all grow and develop. Couldn't have said it better myself. That was beautiful. And a oh, beautiful thank you. <laughs> start wrapping it up. But you wrote a book. And there is no way that we're ending without talking about your book. And tell the people about your book. Okay. Um, so I, there's a book I wrote, it's called Ready for Kindergarten. And it's written, I, re, I wrote this book for families specifically. Um, being a former kindergarten teacher, being a parent of three, being an, a, a godfather and uncle to a seven-year-old who's my brother's child and other, my nieces on my wife's side. Kindergarten is a big moment in a child's life when they enter the public schooling system. And I sometimes feel like there's a lot of misconceptions on what it means for a child to be ready for school. And, and there's things that we could do as parents that we're already doing to help support that transition into school, as well as if you haven't been in a school in, say, 15 years, you don't know what's going on. In the book, I spend the second half of the book talking about what kindergarten has become and how, as a parent, you can prepare yourself and your child for that context so that when your child starts school, that you both go in confidently and you both have a successful year. So it's a book that looks at this idea of school readiness. What does that mean? Why is it such a big deal? And then the second half talks about how, how can you help your child feel successful and be supported so that they go into that year and have a terrific year, as well as how can you prepare yourself for that whole environment too. Right. And what I love about this book, you guys, is that it's talking to you. And it's not oh, yeah. just a bunch of 
research, but it's like actual things that you can do. Because I'm all about not just having the the clinical knowledge or the research knowledge and the published knowledge, but actually like what works when we're going in day in and day out, what works and how can we be tooled up in a way that matters. So I encourage you guys, if you have a little one on their way, or you know someone who has a little one on their way, slide them the book. It'll be in the show notes for you guys to take a look at. Dr. Brown, it has been amazing having you here. I can't wait to have you back. We're going to talk <laughs> about fatherhood in the future because we really want to start getting that message out that dads matter They're in this paradigm. And I am a firm advocate and a firm believer. I've watched it for myself just to see like the impact that a dad can have on their child's life, not only in my home, but in other friends' homes and clients' homes, I've seen that impact. And so dads, we're rooting for you. Usually I'm talking to us moms, but dads, I'm in there for you guys. I'm rooting for y'all because I know you guys can do this. So join me next week. I will be talking about back to school from a homeschooling mom's perspective. So it will be me and a fellow homeschooling guest who will be on the show. I can't wait. Her name is Lindsay Neural, and she will be here talking about her experiences. She homeschooled six whole kids. If that doesn't make you want to go nap, I don't know what does. I have two and I'm ready to take a nap thinking about this upcoming school year. So we're going to be talking to her, listening not just about homeschooling, but like what are some strategies that we can use within the home to help our sugars out as they go into these classroom settings or maybe we're thinking about homeschooling. Do I want to do that? So join me for that. I can't wait to meet you guys there. Everything's going to be in the show notes. World Changers, you guys are always amazing. I can't wait to see you next week. Until the next time, take care.